This podcast includes information provided by the issuer and does not express the views of the interviewer. This podcast may also include forward-looking statements by the issuer that involve certain risks and uncertainties to its business. Because forward-looking statements are subject to risks and uncertainties, the issuer's actual results could differ from those indicated in this podcast. Welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you all so much for the support and for tuning in. You can follow Planet Microcap on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And you are listening to episode 65. I'd like to first start off by thanking everyone who came to the Planet Microcap Showcase 2018. It was great to meet everyone who listens to this podcast, as well as introduce people to our community that is growing rapidly every day. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to tweet at me or shoot me an email at rcraft at snnwire.com. And when you do get a chance, if you like what you hear, please rate and review Planet Microcap on iTunes. It really helps provide feedback for me and spread the microcap message. For this episode of the Planet Microcap podcast, I spoke with Brady Fletcher. He is the managing director of the TSX Venture Exchange. Brady was also a featured speaker at the Planet Microcap Showcase, and we recorded this interview just before the event. I've had representatives from OTC Markets on here, and I thought it was time to learn more about two Canadian exchanges that have a unique platform for microcap companies. The goal for this episode is to learn more about the TSX and TSX Venture Exchanges and their place in the microcap ecosystem. Thank you again for tuning in to episode 65 of the Planet Microcap podcast. Please enjoy my interview with Brady Fletcher, but first, a word from our sponsor. A comprehensive streaming of market data, research, and portfolio management application for you. QuoteStream is a real-time streaming quotes and research system designed for the day trader, retail investor, institutional investor, both new and old. QuoteStream offers low-latency, tick-by-tick data, advanced charting, comprehensive technical analysis, news, and research. With no software to install and no servers to maintain, QuoteStream is the ideal solution for you. Go to stocknewsnow.com and start your free seven-day trial. Click the QuoteStream banner in the header or real-time quotes in the nav bar to get started building and managing your investments. For this episode of the Planet Microcap Podcast, I have Brady Fletcher on the program. He is the Managing Director of the TSX Venture Exchange. Brady, welcome to the Planet Microcap Podcast. Thanks for having me, Bobby. Excited to be here. It's great to have you on. And uh, so to get started here, you know, what's your background and what led you to being in the position you are in today at TMX? <laughs> yeah, it's a... It's an interesting question and you know all those entrepreneurial charts that every consultant loves to throw up where everyone thinks it's from you know the left corner of some graph up to the right corner uh, in a straight line when in fact it's a pretty convoluted path that couldn't be more accurate here. Um, by background I'm a computer engineer and when I graduated engineering I actually started investment banking with a firm called Canaccord Genuity based here in Vancouver. When I joined Canaccord, it was kind of the mining heyday, and at our peak, we were actually doing over 600 deals a year through the firm. Uh, it was this hugely entrepreneurial platform where you had broker-driven transactions that typically were sub $5 million for a venture-listed issuer. Uh, it was our chance as the banking team to get involved with those companies early on, 
And then as those companies executed on their business plan, we'd grow with them and we'd help them get into institutional channels and we'd grow the financing so that, you know, we were taking those companies down to the US or over to Europe. Uh, and it was a really successful model for Canaccord. It was kind of how we, we, it was kind of how we battled the other dealers in Canada. Uh, and we established that leadership position as the largest independent, as largest independent dealer. In 2006, we acquired a firm called Adams, Harkness & Hale down in the U.S., uh, which gave us an initial footprint in the technology space. And at that time, I was considering moving down to the U.S., bringing a little bit of the Vancouver, Canada blood down to Boston, uh, but actually ended up moving to Calgary to build up our public venture capital practice. And Canada Court's public venture capital practice was where we partnered with the brokers to do those smaller transactions, typically a little bit more creative, doing things like RTOs or or uh, unit financings where an investor gets a share and a half warrant attached to it. Um, and we could partner with those companies earlier on in their life cycle to help them grow. So I moved to Calgary November 1st, 2008, which was obviously a great time in capital markets. <laughs> um, and was there, was there for two years before we acquired another firm called Genuity Capital Markets. And I moved back to Vancouver. And so after I did that, we kind of, the firm really really grew and established itself as Canada's leading independent dealer at the time. Um, and now it's, you know, between Canaccord and GMP as to, you know, who the two largest firms are. Uh, the, the Genuity deal was interesting though, because it did get a little bit away from the Canaccord roots where, you know, we were focused on the venture issuers and partnering with companies early. And so I moved over to another firm in Vancouver called Byron Capital Markets. And I ran the Vancouver office for them for about a year. Uh, before I went and joined a VC group called Chrysalix Energy Ventures and actually went on to the buy side working with a venture capital firm that focused on early stage clean tech investments. And throughout that entire kind of 10 year investment banking career, my, my focus was always on these venture stage companies where, you know, you had to roll your sleeves up a little bit as the banker. You had to figure out how to get in there and help the management team understand what their key performance indicators were, dig into their business plan to understand how could you educate the capital markets around what milestones to look for, uh, you know, what was the deal flow really going to look like, and then how could you structure these financings for early stage companies so they could actually get financed and grow uh, in the capital markets and, and leverage public venture capital. So that was always kind of where my passions were and the piece of the business that I was most excited about. After I'd been with the VC for the VC firm for about a year, I went and did my own startup for two years, and we got that up running in Vancouver. We were up to about thirty clients, and we ultimately had a venture capital financing fall apart on us at the last minute. And it was kind of through that experience, yeah, yeah, no, it was it was a tough one. Um, but it was through that experience that you recognized the danger of being married to just one financial partner, and you know the benefit of being listed in a public venue like the TSX Venture Exchange was that you know you do have multiple stakeholders who are there to support the company and while you do have lead while you do have lead brokers and lead investors you have this platform of a stock market underneath that allows you to rotate shareholders around and so after my little technology company um, got packaged up and we kind of shut it down the uh, the venture exchange actually headhunted me to come in and that was why I said it's a little bit of a convoluted path going from banking to being a VC to running a technology startup to ultimately ending up here. And, you know, the piece that really appealed to me was this was a chance for me to have a seat at the table in a market that I've always been so passionate about that's really where I cut my teeth in business. 
and uh, really focus it on how do we help entrepreneurial ventures get up, get listed, access capital, use their share currency, and then and then scale faster than they can as a private company. Um, so that had a lot of appeal to me when the venture exchange came and asked me if I'd be interested in running it. Mm-hmm. I mean, what you know, for those who who don't know, you know, um, what was the history of the TMX and and the venture exchange prior to you coming in? You know, like, what did you see that you could improve? Yeah, that, well, I, I mean, that's a question that how much of this, how much of this podcast do we want to spend on this? Dude, let's go, man. We're good. <laughs> so <clears throat> GMX goes all the way back to 1852 um, when it was a bunch of Toronto, it was a handful of Toronto businessmen that sat around and established the framework for the original Toronto Stock Exchange. I mean, they paid five bucks a seat at the time, but. Um, by 1871, we had 14 member firms and the TMX group just continued to grow over that 167 year history, 166 year history right now. Um, we've done a number of different mergers and acquisitions. And, you know, when you think about where the venture actually came in and what the most, you know, defining moments in this organization's history were, um, in 1999, there was a realignment of Canada's markets and we kind of we took all of these different jurisdictional markets between, you know, Winnipeg and Alberta and Vancouver and the Toronto Stock Exchange and the Montreal Exchange, and they really focused each different one on something unique. So the Montreal Exchange became focused on derivatives. Um, the Vancouver Stock Exchange and the Alberta Stock Exchange merged together to become what was called CDNX, which was the uh, which was the original junior capital markets for Canada. And the TSX became the sole senior equities exchange here in Canada. Um, and so that was 1999. <clears throat> and uh, subsequently, the Winnipeg uh, Stock Exchange and MX put their equities business into CDNX as well, just further growing that venture side of the Canadian markets. Um, 2000, the TSX actually demutualized and became a for-profit entity. Uh, in 2002, we went public ourselves. And so TMX Group now does trade under X on the TSX stock or the Toronto Stock Exchange, a uh, $6 billion company and, and growing nicely. Um, subsequently, we've made a number of other different ex- acquisitions and divestitures that have enabled us to stay focused on that core mission of, of helping companies get up, get listed, access capital and grow. And so in 2001, the TSX actually acquired CDNX and rebranded us to the TSX Venture Exchange, which was our move to to become a vertically integrated platform that uh, provides a two-tiered capital markets for listing companies early, giving them a platform that allows them to access that public venture capital we were talking about. And then as those companies grow, we've got this integrated process to be able to graduate them up to the TSX. And the TSX has all of the accoutrements of a senior stock exchange, things like ISS and Glass-Lewis advising pension funds and institutional capital on how to make their investments. We've got partnerships with S&P around a number of indices that allow ETFs to trade TSX listed names. And so those are all the benefits of being TSX listed. And when you grow up on the venture exchange, it's kind of like growing up with training wheels. You know, you, you learn how to engage your shareholder base. You learn how to engage the analyst community, how to engage and work with the broader capital markets uh, and how, how you expand that following so that 
it's not just about one big splashy IPO. It's about developing that liquidity and that solid shareholder base over time. And we've found that there are there was actually a case study that that the University of Calgary did that showed graduates off of the venture exchange outperformed straight TSX IPOs by about thirty percent. And it is because they have that ability to you know learn about what it's like to be a public company, you know learn what it's like to have to report on a quarterly basis and to have you know shareholders who are expecting you to deliver on milestones and holding you accountable. Um, all of which is ultimately po positive, but by growing up on venture, you kind of get to do that with training wheels. For sure. I mean, um, so so <clears throat> then so then, what does it take for a venture exchange listed company to then graduate to uh, the the TSX big board? What's the criteria? We have very defined listing criteria for both markets. Um, ultimately, venture does defer a little bit to arm's length financing size. Um, disclosure being, you know, the, of paramount importance and disclosure and transparency for us. Uh, when you get to wanting to graduate to the TSX, there are things like revenue tests and size and, and governance that are a little bit more stringent than what we have on the venture. Um, and so that's where <clears throat> those companies that have grown up with us on venture, they, they kind of constantly measure against that. And at the point in time that they're ready and that they're set up for success, that's when we look to graduate them to TSX. Mm -hmm. Now, that being said, the venture is a capital formation platform and you know this space for us to uh, help companies list early and access, access those rounds of capital. And I should note that you know, two thirds of the companies listed on venture raise three or more rounds of capital, mm -hmm. which is drastically different than anything in the private equity arena. Um, or in the venture capital space, where you know the vast majority of companies raise one capital, one round of capital, and then are done. Mm -hmm. um, but those companies that have listed with us, they typically raise two, three, four, five rounds of capital as they grow. And we're now also seeing them go and dual list on Nasdaq, which is what Kronos just did. Um, so Kronos is dual listed with us and also on Nasdaq now. Um, but that company did get up and grow with us before moving down to the states. And there are some benefits of if you've been listed in Canada for 12 months on either the TSX or the TSX Venture because we're recognized exchanges, uh, then you can take advantage of a system called multi-jurisdictional disclosure. And the MJDS allows you to dual list down to the U.S. on a fast track basis where the U.S. regulators defer to the Canadian disclosure uh, as long as you've been a good actor on one of the TSX or the TSX Venture for 12 months. Mm -hmm. And and just you know, I have to ask you know for for full disclosure, are you a, a shareholder of Kronos? I just have to ask as a part of our no. compliance. Yeah, no, no. I, so I, I made the conscious decision when I took this position that I was not going to be active in the capital markets. Um, I saw this as a spot where I'd be doing things like this podcast, and mm -hmm. you know, I'm I more saw the opportunity to bring attention to this market and. You know, it is a globally unique platform for financing and growing venture stage companies. Mm -hmm. uh, and so as you know, we're working to get that story out and we're working to bring U.S. capital and help U.S. capital see returns by trading on our market and, and supporting these companies. We're actively tapping into U.K. and Israeli and Australian pools of capital and issuers. And so um, I didn't want to jeopardize that credibility by uh, being an active trader in any of these names. You know, that was the longest disclosure statement anybody's ever given on the podcast. So I do appreciate that. <laughs> well, it's, a, it's a personal one, right? Yeah. There's, there's, there's a love. 
<laughs> that was funny. So, um, so another question I have is, you know, in terms of um, weighted weightedness, I guess you'd say, you know, what would how does how do you, how would you say the venture breaks down in terms of you know sector weightedness? That's an interesting one, and you know, when you think about how your question around what was the opportunity that I saw here. Mm-hmm. And it, it used to be that the venture was, you know, 60 to 80 percent weighted to the mining industry and or to the broader resources industry. And that's Canada's capital markets as well. Right. Um, but I looked at it and, you know, you look at the tools and the mechanisms that the mining guys have used for decades, things like the RTO mechanism and the ability to raise subsequent rounds of capital at sequentially higher valuations and how that's less dilutive for a management team that's trying to build a business. Um, you looked at those that framework that existed and the fact that our broader capital markets had this risk appetite for fostering the growth of those companies. And that's where it started to get really exciting for me. I said, you know, these technology companies who the management team puts their sweat and blood into building a, building a new product, getting first into commercialization, um, we got to figure out a way to give them the same access to the public venture capital pools that are out there this, like the mining guys have done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, you look at things like the RTO mechanism or, or mechanism or reverse takeover. And what that does is it gives an entrepreneur confidence in what the pro- going public process looks like. Uh, they can find a vehicle that's out there and, and say, okay, well, here's what our, here's what our terms of coming to an amalgamation look like. And, on the back of that, they put out a press release and they go and market market the financing to see if the investment community wants to support that transaction. Mm-hmm. And then if the investment community is willing to support it, all the legal expenses are back-end loaded as they process through the reverse takeover and ultimately consummate a transaction where the financing comes out of an escrow. Uh, the two entities merge together and the private company now is effectively running the public vehicle. Um, and so that's a, it's a really efficient way for a junior company to be able to test investor appetite and maintain control of their, of their listings process. Um, the other nice thing about it is that it gives the shareholders of that listed vehicle or the shell company, uh, another kick at the can. And so if, if a mining company or a junior technology company gets out there and tests an idea and turns out that the idea doesn't work, whether that was the drill hole didn't have gold or nobody wanted to buy the software solution, management can retrench, management can retrench themselves um, and they can then go back and find a new project to vend into that vehicle and that public vehicle has some value. So all the public shareholders then get to participate in whatever that next story is. So it's almost like it's it's like kind of like reggae plus, but more on the company side, you know, like reggae plus down here. It's like you're kind of you're going out to investors to see, you know, to get that actually get the investment. But on you're telling me that through this RTO process, it's more like, all right, you know, you can, it's available for you already have this in, uh, existing investor base available to go in and invest in this potential new merger. But yeah. you can see first if the company is actually, you know, going to be a real company. Is is that more or less what it is? That's part of it. And so it is that you do get to inherit the shareholder base who's who are then champions of your story. And you've got distribution and some level of liquidity on day one. Mm-hmm. Um, 
it's interesting to hear you bring up Reg A Plus, though, because you know the companies that the the U.S. Um, regulators are really trying to support there are the standard company that finds a market for themselves here in Canada. Uh, our average market cap is about twenty five million bucks. Our average financing size between four and five million dollars. Uh, we did you know over fifteen over fifteen hundred transactions last year um, and raised six point one billion dollars for companies. Wow. So you look at those numbers, and wow. you know those are those are growth stage issuers who are who are trying to find those those first million bucks or two million bucks to be able to finance the growth of their business, and they come up here to do it. Um, so, so you know I think the Reg A plus mechanism there's a real opportunity for us to work with uh, both U.S. investors and U.S. companies who who find themselves raising a little bit of money and and then looking to find a listing platform to provide that liquidity to shareholders too. Interesting. You know, so Brady, over, over the last two years, I've, I've had, you know, quite a few investors on here that um, have made their mark uh, investing in non-resource TSX venture, TSX listed companies, you know, in the, the technology, consumer, you know, all these other names um, that were just not resource companies, you know, with the fluctuation of what's been going on in the market. You know, how do you explain this phenomenon? It's an interesting one. Um, and, you know, as we were talking about, the, the mining industry really has been the engine of the Canadian capital markets and historically constituted a majority of not only our listed issuers by number, but also by market cap. Mm -hmm. uh, last year, the 6.1 billion that we raised on venture for for the 1,564 uh, issuers that we have, um, the the 3.1 billion of that actually went into the mining space, and so 52% of the money that was raised for the listed issuers did go into mining. Here, last year was unique because we did see that it was that a good chunk of that went into the diversified metal space. And that was the emergence of lithium, of cobalt, of nickel, uh, battery metals in general, uh, really kind of made their mark. We have started to see that, you know, there are more and more investors, guys like Hamid Shabazi or Sheldon Pollock or Manny Pata, who are, uh, or even Bruce Croxon, you know, from around 13 Capital, who are looking at the companies listed with us in the technology space and saying, not only are the valuations attractive, uh, they're seeing they're seeing good growth, and they've got the ability to put a smaller amount of capital to work to see if management can actually deliver on what they're promising. Uh, and ultimately, you have an exit structured in because you might get involved in a company at a fifty million dollar valuation, and if it hits a hundred million dollars, that's a win for you. Mm -hmm. But if that stayed private, if it goes fifty to a hundred, they need to raise another round of private equity at a hundred million dollars which generally as a rule of thumb means that nobody's thinking about taking that company public until they hit 500 million. And typically somewhere along the way you raise another round of private equity, which means it's got to get over a billion dollars before somebody thinks of selling the thing. And so these guys that are now looking at the, the venture market and our two tiered ecosystem in Canada are thinking about, you know, how do we, how do we put a smaller amount of money to work at an interesting valuation? And how do we have that exit structured in so that we're not, forcing the sale of a company at an inopportune time. Um, how do we make sure that we're totally aligned with management and that we're here to work with them? Um, and, you know, how do we really help grow some success stories? 
TIO Networks was TIO Networks was one that was listed with us, and Hamid Shabazi was CEO of that. And over 15 years, he pivoted the business kind of five times, trying different things, bending it in different technologies. Uh, eventually, he found one that he built the entire core of TIO around, and that ultimately sold to PayPal for 304 million bucks. And now the team that's the team that was behind that is kind of driving PayPal's emerging uh, initiative into the unbanked sector. Um, so those are those are the kind of things that happen with us, where those entrepreneurs and those investors can find kind of core technologies that they can wrap a business around and then use that share currency for making other acquisitions and scaling the business. Uh, and then ultimately, that business either becomes a self-sustaining large issuer and graduates to the TSX or to NASDAQ or NYSE, uh, or gets acquired. Um, and you know was, that's what happened with TIO. Mm -hmm. Hamid's since gone on to build Wellness Lifestyles, which is listed on the venture as well. Um, and I'm not a shareholder there either, but uh, he he's growing that company uh, with the same philosophy of finding you know interesting interesting businesses that you can scale around by using your share currency to make acquisitions. Mm -hmm. So Brady, what what's the microcap ecosystem like for issuers listed on either the TSX or the TSX venture right now? I'd say it's really good um, when you look at the Venture 50 awards that we have. And so every year that's our flagship program where we recognize the top 10 performing companies out of five different industry groupings across the Venture Exchange, uh, being mining, energy and energy services, diversified, clean tech and life sciences and technology. And this is the first year in our history that you've, you've had relatively uniform performance across all five groupings. Historically, the mining guys have outperformed pretty dramatically, and then you know because we broke it into groupings, we had ten, the top ten of each of the other sectors. Um, but this year, we saw relatively consistent performance across all of them, um, with some really interesting companies in there, like Gen Three Oil, which is doing oil remediation, Relic Health doing telehealth and, and growing that technology platform. Uh, Wellness Lifestyles was in there as well, uh, and BTL Group, which is one of the first publicly traded blockchain companies. As well as you know, we had three marijuana companies in in that grouping um, mm -hmm. this year as well. And so you look at that, and to me, it's it, when we did that award, it really represented that we have a healthy market across all sectors right now. Uh, the six point one billion that we did in financing last year, yes, it was fifty two percent into mining, but at the same time, half of that mining activity was tied to battery metals companies with which are arguably tied to electric vehicles. Um, in the first quarter of this year, we've done $2.3 billion worth of financings, and it's actually almost broken down a third technology, a third life sciences, and a third mining. Uh, all of this is available, available in our Market Insight Group reports, and those come out on a monthly basis. And if you go to tmx.com, you can sign up for those. Um, so I, I actually think we're in a really positive environment for companies that are Listed on the venture and raising those, you know, subsequent rounds of capital. Uh, obviously, the windows are open, and we're seeing strong financing activity. Mm -hmm. And and just to also follow follow up on that, and this is, you know, because you know I'm I'm based in the U.S. You know, there's a lot of U.S. companies that may be listening to this as well. You know, what's what's the the tax implications? You know, I'm because I'm just thinking to myself, like, okay, I'm a U.S. domiciled company. Now I might, you know, go and list on the venture in up up in Canada. 
you know, do I now have to pay twice? You know, how, what's that work or how does that look? Yeah. Well, you're not going to have to pay twice. Okay. <laughs> um, that's, you know, there are, tax, there are tax treaties and things in place that, uh, the streamline that. And I'm not a lawyer and I'm not an accountant. So I'd always recommend that people have the proper team of professionals wrapped around them for that. Um, if you're a U.S. company looking at listing up in Canada, I think the the biggest question is what's the structure that you pursue? If you do a straight IPO, how do you get around some of the foreign ownership restrictions or or not put yourself um, subject to the U.S. disclosure obligations? Um, similarly, if you do a reverse takeover of a vehicle, how do you navigate um, the potential deemed disposition laws? And there are ways of doing it, and there's a number of accountants that are out there that have built established practices around helping companies navigate that. Um, so at the end of the day, you're not going to get taxed twice. It's just a question of, you know, how do you how do you make sure that the transaction is viewed appropriately by the regulators? Because right. if you do an RTO, you're not divesting of your shares. Um, you're just exchanging one share one share for another, right? Right. So, okay. So moving forward, you know, another question I always was curious, you know, it's what, what differentiates the, the TSX and TSX venture from other domestic and international exchanges? Sure. Yeah. And so when you say, when you say domestic, you're talking North American and international is when we start to look at Australia yes. and London. And, yes. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. Um, I would say venture in itself is globally unique. Um, the closest thing could be OTC, uh, but we've got a established, you know, we've got an established regulatory environment. We're a fully operational stock exchange with order matching and all the technology that underpins the TSX as well. Um, so it's not just an OTC platform. Um, and, you know, we've got a history of, of maintaining good governance with our issuers as well. Um, that brings institutional capital up to these markets, uh, and you know it does does open up doors that I think most other junior capital markets don't have access to. Um, when you look at the TSX, the TSX is a globally competitive leading stock exchange, and so it it competes head to head with London, with Nasdaq, with New York uh, for technology issuers, for resource issuers, and ultimately, you know where we where we've historically really differentiated ourselves has been on two fronts. One has been almost half of every mining financing dollar is funded through the Canadian markets, either the TSX or the TSX venture. So half of all global financing activity has historically happened here on our markets, um, which does you know create this engine where we get global pools of capital active with us, and then those global pools of capital look to participate in other issuers as well. Uh, the other piece that really differentiates us is the fact that we have the TSX and the TSX venture. And that enables us to list companies earlier with a little bit of a lighter touch, a little bit more of a defined framework that allows those venture stage companies to get up and access public venture capital earlier in their life cycle. Uh, and then as they grow, as they grow and demonstrate that they're executing on their business plan and they build that credibility in the capital markets and liquidity follows, then we're able to graduate them up to the TSX. And that's a relatively seamless experience for those issuers. Um, once they meet those minimum listing requirements that we talked about earlier, it's our ability to 
graduate them to TSX and give them access to all the benefits of being listed on a senior exchange and a globally competitive senior exchange. Mm-hmm. And what's the process like for U.S. investors to invest in companies that are only listed on one of the TMX exchanges? Is it, it does it require a couple extra steps? You know, what, what does that look like? It, you know, it's obviously a little bit more complicated than we'd probably like. Um, <laughs> I'd love it. To, I'd love it to be as simple as trading any Nasdaq listed issuer that's out there. Um, for a lot of reasons, the U.S. has always had rules around stocks that trade below five dollars, and and so that ranges from compliance to blue sky laws, and and so some some dealers don't have anything that's under five dollars listed on their stock list. Um, but really, for any U.S. investor that's interested in trading a venture or a TSX listed name, uh, most of our TSX names do show up at, at U.S. brokerages because they're trading at above that threshold. Um, but for any company that's not, a U.S. investor can just go to their broker and ask to trade it. Mm-hmm. And the broker the broker will be able to facilitate that trade. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, also another thing that I'm, I've been curious about too is the, the difference in the regulatory environment, you know, ver- in Canada versus, let's say, the U.S. You know, what, what does that look like? The... Yeah, there's a couple of different pieces there. Um, you know, we can we can dig into things like the the fact that we have a different regulator in each province, um, and so the the TSX venture in and of itself is uh, subject to a recognition order and governance by the Alberta Stock or sorry the Alberta Securities Commission and the BC Securities Commission, while the TSX is governed by the Ontario Securities Commission. Um, each company is regulated by the security commission for whichever province that they're registered in. Um, and so there is kind of a little bit of regulatory arbitrage and competition between the different securities commissions to want to make sure that they are, they are fostering the growth of corporate Canada in their province and that they're not stifling it. Um, the, I think that we've really seen all of the securities commissions in Canada step up and look to get up to speed quickly on the marijuana space and on the cryptocurrency space and what's happening in technology. And I really have to commend them for that, that they've, you know, they've moved quickly to wrap their heads around it and to try to make sure that, uh, we're, we're forcing the right levels of disclosure and that we're making sure that, um, that there's transparent, that there's full plain, true transparent disclosure on the issuers listed with us on the TSX and on the venture exchange and that they're supportive of those issuers who, who do grow here with us. Um, it's a little bit different than the US where you know you only have the SEC and uh, the SEC kind of has the final say on everything. Mm-hmm. It sometimes makes things a little bit easier when you're trying to deal with one rule book. Um, but the, at the end of the day, I think the big difference is that the Canadian ecosystem, including the brokers, the dealers, uh, the retail investors, the institutional investors, the securities commissions, and ultimately ourselves, uh, are a little bit more uh, aligned with that of the small cap issuer uh, or the venture stage company who's looking to access capital a little bit earlier on mm-hmm. and grow. Uh, you know, I think it, there's a there's a higher risk appetite in general uh, amongst Canada. Mm-hmm. So another another question I, I have to ask too. You know, I mean, you you watch the news. You know, there's so much news going on down down here in the US in terms of politics and how that might affect 
affect different tax reforms and all sorts of things that may have an effect on the microcap space. So is there any type of big hot button, you know, a, a news type events going on in Canada that, you know, microcap investors should, you know, stay aware of and, and stay up to date on? That's an interesting one. And I think it depends on where the where the audience is based for this. Uh, and if you're a U.S. investor, then, um, you know, you got to be cognizant of, of any regulatory regime where a company is operating. Uh, you know, we have between the two exchanges, there's roughly 5,700 mining projects under exploration, development and production today. And over half of those are in international geographies. Um, so if you've got a mining company that's operating in uh, Nicaragua, you got to be cognizant that there's you know, there's some potential for disruption to happen and it's not necessarily the same as operating in the U S or in Canada. Um, I think that that's just a, that's just a constant of, of wanting to make investments and wanting to be able to, uh, choose to put your money in more stable operating, uh, geographies and, and decide whether you want, you think Brexit's going to have a more detrimental effect than anything happening in the U S or anything that's happening in Canada. Um, when you think about the stuff that's happening here in Canada, our government's actually shown a willingness to listen to the feedback from the business community. And they did that over some tax reforms that were happening last year. And, and, you know, we're seeing that the investment climate here is pretty good. Um, it's a, there's a lot of, there's a lot of startup capital. We put roughly a billion dollars into, uh, into various startup clusters across the country focused on different industries. And, and so our government is actively trying to support uh, the growth of those, of those companies. Nice. So then what advice would you have for, let's, let's say just private companies that might be considering hmm. uh, listing in Canada? Uh, yeah, you know, doors are, doors are open and we're here, for, <laughs> we're here to, to help, right? Um, we have a series of U.S. roadshows going on. We just did one in New York. We've got one in Boston coming up. We're doing North and Southern California, and I think uh, I think we're doing Phoenix as the fifth one this year, or somewhere further south. Um, but we're you know the doors are open here, and, and we're here to help those companies grow. So uh, reach out. We've got we've got actually two people on the ground in North and Southern California, and we've got one guy who kind of covers the East Coast as well. Um, the, the big thing I think is you got to have a little bit of a defined business plan. If you're not in revenue, you should have a very clear path to that revenue. Um, and then, you know, start talking to the deal, start talking to the dealers and to the investors here about, uh, what, what the appetite looks like. Um, technology companies that have good growth prospects in front of them. I really think that the optionality of listing early on the venture exchange is is more appealing than chasing those rounds of private capital um, because it does give you the ability to raise to raise money from a group of investors and it's it's permanent capital. And what I mean by that is when you take money from a venture capital firm, they typically have to return that capital to their limited partners within a defined period of time. Uh, when you take money from a public investor, that money is yours to deploy and to use to build the business. And at the point in time that that public shareholder decides that they need the money back to either to return to an LP or to do something else with, um, it's their ability to it's their ability to sell in the public markets. 
And so those are those are real benefits for growth stage companies that are thinking about trying that are thinking about trying to grow and raise that next round of capital. And and just talking to the Canadian capital markets and the bankers and the investors there about what your story looks like makes a ton of sense. Nice. So then, you know, Brady, where can my audience go and find more information about the TMX group? Our website's out there at tmx.com, um, tommaryxray.com, uh, or the link, our LinkedIn site is also a great resource for finding out what's going on, as well as our guide to listing is posted online. And the guide to listing has a number of the, of the statistics that showcase, um, a number of statistics that showcase, you know, what happened on the venture exchange last year and some of the things that are going on. Uh, right now, as well as the as well as the process to getting listed here in Canada, whether that's by way of IPO, RTO, TSX versus venture, and what the listing requirements are for both exchanges. Nice. Well, Brady, I want to thank you so much for joining me today on the on the Planet Microcap podcast, and uh, hey, I'll see you next week. Yeah, looking forward to the conference. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Thank you all for tuning in to the Planet Microcap podcast and thank you Brady again for coming on to the program. You can access the podcast by going on to stocknewsnow.com under podcast, go to podbean.com and search Planet Microcap podcast or on iTunes and search Planet Microcap podcast. Stay tuned for the next Planet Microcap podcast where we'll have our next guest to discuss all things microcap. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, please send an email to info at snnwire.com. I'd love to hear from all of you. This podcast has been brought to you by SNN Incorporated, publishers of stocknewsnow.com, the official microcap news source, and the microcap review magazine. I'm your host, Robert Kraft, and thank you again for joining me on the Planet Microcap Podcast. Have a great week, everyone.